Welcome to the St. Andrew Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. No matter who you are, where you've been, what you believe, or whether you even believe at all, you belong here. Friends, today we get to read our neighbor's mail. This morning's reading from 1 Corinthians is essentially a personal correspondence between a pastor and the small congregation he started in Greece. Paul founded the church at Corinth on his second missionary journey when he stayed in the city for about 18 months. Some 50 miles from Athens, Corinth was one of the ancient largest cities at the time and most prosperous cities. The congregation at Corneth was diverse, both ethnically and socially. One of the main issues Paul faced was the integration of persons from multiple levels of society, which proved to be a major source of conflict within the congregation, not unlike today. In Paul's reading, Paul stresses one of the most important aspects of a thriving community, unity bound together through genuine love. Let's hear now Paul's gentle, encouraging words to his beloved congregants. A reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. If I speak in the tongues of humans and of angels but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions and if I hand over my body so that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. For love is patient, love is kind, love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable. It keeps no record of wrongs. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes in all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will also come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part, but when the complete comes, the partial will also come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to my childish ways. For now we see only a reflection, as in a mirror. But then we will face and see one another face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, 
even as I have been fully known. And now, faith, hope, and love remain in these three, these three, and the greatest of these is love. Thus ends the reading. We're finally here, aren't we? Advent is upon us. It is a time of joy and light and music and most importantly, anticipation. And probably more importantly, it is a time of worship. Advent is when we remember that God reached down from incomprehensible heights to touch the life we live. And the Word became flesh and lived among us, John says. The God of all creation, imagine it, entered our world in the most unlikely of settings. A manger or a house. It might have been in a cave. Some of the details are fuzzy. But you get the picture. It's hard to imagine, really. Love itself, the creator of the universe, crying in prickly hay, fodder for animals. And when you grasp the truth of that moment, the singularity of it, I would argue there's no proper response other than worship. And indeed, over the coming weeks, we will remember and explore some of the most cherished songs of praise and worship in our Christian tradition, the most cherished that the tradition has produced over centuries in honor of that moment that Christ was born. We will explore Mary's moving magnificant, Zachariah's spirit-filled words we know as the Benedictus, the praise-filled glory in excelsis, and many more. I hope you will join us. These inspired songs written by a handful of prophets and poets about a Messiah who would come to redeem the world are more prophetic and hopeful now than ever. And in their own way, I think each sings about an ever-faithful, ever-loving God, a world in deep turmoil, a people desperate for peace, and a Savior, a Savior who will come to redeem all of creation. And as I prayed and I ponder and I thought about what I might bring to all of you this morning before we get to Advent, this idea of love kept entering into my mind. I mean, after all, the power and the awe that we feel as we remember and celebrate the nativity of Christ, I think, rest in the singularity, that breathtaking realization that a true, unending, unbounded divine love entered our world. Rev. Mark mentioned it last week. Do you remember? There's going to be a quiz later. Do you remember? Um, it's that shepherd's love, that self-giving, sacrificial shepherd's love, he called it. A love that he says, quote, looks and feels like ownership, stewardship, deep investment. Friends, that is a love that is holding the world together, that's holding the church together. And as Rev. Mark stated, when we emulate this love that this good shepherd brings, it allows us to, quote, put our feet where our hearts want to be. Ah, oh, that's a good line. I wish I had written that. 
When we do that, we find a higher purpose, a calling beyond ourselves. And beloved, I know you've heard this verse a million times, but it's hard for me to overstate this concept of love. It is the quintessential characteristic of God according to Scripture, and it is the identifying mark of anyone who claims to follow Christ. In 1 John 4.8, we are told simply three words, Otheos agape estion, God is love. That is a hallmark of Christian theology from beginning to end. And St. Augustine, my beloved St. Augustine, went even further with it. Commenting on this verse, Augustine played a syllogism that would forever change Christian theology. He said, God is love, yes, but love is also God. Hence, when we are doing things, we are not loving or serving others merely on their own account, but because we find an experience of God in others. Love others, he says. For if you love others whom you see, you will see God at the same time, because you will see love itself, and God dwells within it, you see? There's an ancient hymn from the 8th century in Latin, and it puts this idea in the simplest of terms. It, it reads, Ubi caritas et amor Deus ebu ist. Where charity and love are, God is there. You see? God is love. But love is also God. It's essential. And it's an intriguing thing really, when you put your mind to it. I mean, we use the word in a variety of ways, do we not? Probably used them a couple times this past week. I love pumpkin pie. <laughs> Did you say it? Oh, I love it, right? We use it a lot. We use it in so many ways. And we're, we're fickle about it, right? We're fickle about it. It seems to be something that we fall easily in and out of, right? In our modern times, I think we use the word so often and in such a variety of ways that it's meaning. It gets muddled and it gets lost. And so this morning, that's kind of what I wanted to do as we set our sights on the coming of Advent. I, I want to see about this moment where love entered the world. I want to explore that idea of love and more specifically, this business of loving. So diving into the text, let's see if we can unpack a couple crucial characteristics of love. Look for ways we can demonstrate it through our attitudes and our actions, both individually and as a community. And like I said, our reading is a familiar one. It's one of the best known passages in Scripture. You wouldn't even have to open a Bible at any point in your life to hear these words if you've ever attended a wedding, right? And in fact, many couples um, that are planning to get married um, come to me as uh, we're planning the services out, and they say, now we want to be sure we include that, uh, that love chapter that love chapter? Yeah. And I try to explain to them sometimes, um, you know, that wasn't really written for a wedding. Um, really well. um, it was written for a group, a group of people who came together and, and they cared about each other. But pretty soon it was clear that some of them thought that they had better ideas than some other people. Some of them began to have voices that were a little louder than some others. And pretty soon they were all saying to one another, well, I mean, we're all equal. It's just that some of us are more equal than others right? And it's at that point that they come to me and they say, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what we want right at our wedding. Okay, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I get it. It's a, it's a cozy chapter on the surface. It incites feelings of comfort. I mean, listen to the words. It's, of course, a text that's often used at weddings. I totally get that because it might be incorrectly understood as, as praising the value of romantic or, or human love. And what is often missed or perhaps actively ignored is that the text was first written to a, a community, a community like this that was having a very difficult time staying together 
I don't know. Maybe that's what makes it a great text for a wedding. Maybe. Um, it, it, it's in the difficult realities of relationships and communities that the love described by Paul needs to be lived out in costly ways. And because of that dynamic, I think, the text might have some words of wisdom for us as we look at it this morning. Now, to put it in context of the letter itself, in the previous chapter, in chapter 12, Paul waxes eloquently about a variety of gifts of the Spirit given to the church. And that is a topic that he picks up again in chapter 14, on the other side of 13. Um, This intervening chapter, it feels like an interruption, to be honest. He's talking about one thing, gets sidetracked, and then goes back to what he was talking about. But I would argue that chapter 13 is the key that unlocks the entire letter. In fact, his entire message. And this is made evident by a phrase that appears just before our reading this morning. It reads, and now I will show you a more excellent way. So he rattles off all these gifts. And he says, however, I will show you now a more excellent way. And most translations come close to the expression in Greek in which love is introduced is this excellent way, and that is certainly what it is. However, I think that such renderings don't really capture the point of the language. One English translation I read translates the phrase beyond comparison. I will show you a way beyond comparison. I I like that. That gets a little closer. More precisely, however, if I were translating it, the Greek word indicates something like beyond measuring, right? And now I will show you something beyond measuring. And that is important for these people to hear because measuring themselves, their abilities, their status to one another seems to have become something of an obsession in the Corinthian church. The church in Corinth was beset on all sides, it seems, by feelings of pride and envy and jealousy. Division was the issue at hand. Now, I know we don't have any problem with that here at St. Andrew. I get that. Maybe there's something here still. Love is the shape, you see, of a life that has been set free from competition, according to Paul. Set free from competition that disrupts the community of Corinth. And right at the outset, we discover just how vital this business of loving is. How important is it? Well, quite simply, without it, we are nothing. Prior to his instructions on what it is, We see in these first three verses a staggering set of statements emphasizing the absolute necessity and value of love. If I speak in the tongues of humans and angels but don't have love, yeah, I'm a noisy gong or symbol. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries, all knowledge, have all faith, so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, if I hand over my body, So that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Without love, my friends, it does not matter what budgets, buildings, missional strategies we have. Such things do not give the church the shape that God desires, according to Paul. We may pursue various forms of spirituality or even boast about proper doctrine, right, or in the name of activism, seek justice and and righteousness. However, in our pursuit of these otherwise very fine and necessary things, we must not forget that the church is called to be a community that practices love. 
one of my favorite poets, Robert Browning, 19th century English poet, he wrote these words that echo this sentiment. Take away love, and the earth is but a tomb. A tomb. Love is vital. Regardless of what mission we participate in, regardless of what title we hold, regardless of what gift our Creator endows us with, without love is a foundation, personally and corporately, as a church, we will drift and disintegrate into a sea of disunity and irrelevance. And like a diamond, love has many facets, it seems, according to Paul. There are 16 that Paul lists, each of which we will cover in mind-numbing detail this morning. <laughs> I'm just kidding. For the sake of time, your sanity, and my future employment here at St. Andrew, <laughs> we're going to examine two, two of them. And then we're going to look at two things that we might need to keep this business of love working. But before we get there, right at the outset, I think a couple elements of the text itself are important. First of all, each of these little facets, these little things that Paul talks about, in the English appear as an adjective, as a description, right? Love is a noun. It is like this in the English. However, in the Greek, each one appears grammatically as a verb. It's a verb. In verses 4 through 8, love is the subject of 16 verbs in a row. It happens in every phrase. In other words, in Greek, love does this. It's not simply is this. It does this. Here, love is a busy, active thing that never ceases to work. It is always finding ways to express itself for the good of others. The point is not some flowery description of what love is in some abstract or theoretical sense, but of what love does, and especially what love does for one's siblings in the church. This business of loving, then, is not only vital, but it seems it is active. It is something that we do. It behaves a certain way. Secondly, the form of the verb is interesting to me because I love grammar. It is in the present indicative active, or the present continuous sense, you see. It is ongoing. It has happened and keeps on going. And this illustrates a dimension of not just a behavior, but a habitual behavior. It doesn't just happen to us. We don't just wake up and become all of these things, patient, kind, humble. It's a slow, ongoing, continuous practice, even with the Holy Spirit helping us along, you see. We will only discover these aspects of love that Paul is presenting to us if they become a part of our lives in so much as we incorporate them into every moment of our daily living. And friends, if we are honest, sometimes this business of loving is somewhat challenging. Somewhat challenging. Here's where I may get a little preachy, so hold on. What's interesting to me is Paul never says that love feels good. Did you catch that? He never stops and says, you're going to feel wonderful. He never says that. And, and, and this is where the typical use of these words, this chapter, I think it goes off the rails. Because such misunderstandings create trouble not only for expectations regarding our day-to-day -day realities in relationship, but also for the realities of the church itself as an entity. Because of our disordered assumptions about what love actually is, we often think that the mission of the church, its action, is to gather like-minded and likable people together. I mean, after all, we think such a community, it, uh, it will be easy for us to love, right? Or let's feel the love, whatever that means, right? But true love is not measured by how good it makes us feel. In the context of this letter, it would be better to say that love 
is measured in its capacity for tension and disagreement without division. Let me say that again. The measure of love is its capacity for tension and disagreement without division. And that's challenging. One commentator explained that this verse is a perfect description of the person and personality of Jesus. You know how you can tell? Just put the word Jesus in wherever you see love. Let's try it. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus is not boastful or rude. He does not insist on his own way. Jesus keeps no record of wrongs and does not rejoice in wrongdoings, but rejoices in truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Jesus never ends. All right, you ready? Let's flip that script and put your own name in there. Whoops. Did I say that out loud? Here, I'll try it on myself first. We'll give it a test run. I'm watching you. Jerry is patient. Jerry is kind. I hope so. Jerry is not boastful or arrogant or rude. He does not insist on his own way. Jerry keeps no records of wrongs and does not rejoice in wrongdoings, but rejoices in true. Jerry bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Jerry never ends. <laughs> yeah, you, you hear it, right? I'm sure my wife, if she's watching, and when I'm none of those things, she would totally agree with that last statement, right? <laughs> never ends. This business of loving, it's active, it's habitual. It's a behavior. It is something of a challenge. It was a challenge 2,000 years ago for the church of Corinth. It's going to be a challenge for us today as well. But friends, I want to assure you, it is something that we can do. It is completely something that we can do in Christ together. So let's move on to two little facets of this kind of love. The first one, we get right to it. Love is patient. Now, I grew up in Texas with the King James Version of the Bible, and sometimes I like those words a little better, especially here. Instead of love is patient in the KJV, it translated as charity suffereth long. Isn't that great? Why don't you try that little mantra on for size the next time somebody's really getting on your nerves, right? Or the next time you're in that long line at the grocery store, just stop and say, charity suffereth long. Right, it's such a great phrase. And of course, anybody who's been on I-25 in the afternoon near Denver knows exactly what I'm talking about, right? I mean, the usage of the word here, it actually means a holding intention in our minds before we give rise to passion. It's, it's an expression of control, really. Love, in other words, has a long fuse, right? It has a long fuse. And it's also a word that's emphasizing patience with people over circumstances. And I think that's uh, wise because dealing with circumstances is just a tickle easier than dealing with people most of the time. I mean, after all, stuff happens, right? We can't control it. It just happens and we have to deal with it. But people, people have choices they can make, right? And when we feel significantly wronged, when they don't respond the way that we think they should or expect they should, well, that gives rise to passion. And that's when we need a long-suffering fuse, right? One commentator I read said, the word is used of one who is wronged and who has it easily in their power to avenge, but will never do it. Never do it. And beloved, I have to tell you, in the culture of the Greeks, that was odd. 
there was a popular notion in Greek culture that any underlying wrong needed to be righted. Yes? I mean, think about the great Greek stories of old and your heroes. What were they? They were avengers. They were those that righted wrongs in all times, right? But Paul comes along sitting there in Corinth and just counters that notion with this idea of patience. True love, transformative love, does not default to vengeance. It does not instinctively move to coerce, correct, condemn. And it's the kind of patience that we see in Christ all throughout Scripture. In the epistles of First and Second Peter, the author implores his readers, implores them, begs them to follow the example of Christ, to emulate this perfect and patient love. He writes, Rid yourselves, therefore, of all malice, all guile, insincerity, envy, and all slander. When he was abused, he did not return abuse. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Finally, all of you, he writes, have unity of spirit, sympathy, love for one another, a tender heart and a humble mind. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some think of slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Love is patient. It sees beyond a moment, and it sees the possibilities of what could be. It transforms. John Quincy Adams, the sixth president of the United States, once wrote, Patience and perseverance have a magical effect which difficulties before which difficulties disappear and obstacles vanish. I like that. Abraham Lincoln, the 16th president of these United States, is almost a mythical hero in our minds. But I have to tell you, friends, uh, during his tenure as leader of the free world, there were a lot of people that did not like him. Hated him, in fact. Spoke ill of him on many occasions. One of these um, was Edwin McMaster Stanton, a young lawyer and politician born in 1814 in Steubenville, Ohio. This, he was a decisive man, a direct man, very practical, wouldn't say patient. Um, during his career and some of his writings, he described Lincoln as, quote, a low, cunning clown, right? Did not like the man a- at all. And when Lincoln appointed his cabinet, he made Stanton his war minister, right? And all of Lincoln's cohorts asked him how he could appoint this man who berated him and insulted him on every occasion. And Lincoln simply replied, he's the best man for the job, and I will treat him with every courtesy. And beloved, when the bullet took Lincoln's life and his still lifeless body lay in the stateroom, Stanton is recorded as saying through his tears, there lies the greatest ruler of men that the world has ever seen. Transformation. The loving patience of Lincoln had won out the hard heart of Stanton. Love then is patient. And love is kind. Love is kind. Right away you feel the strength of that statement. Again, this is something that's easy to understand, easy to grasp. I don't need to spend a lot of time on it. We can all recognize the necessity of kindness. Isaac Watts once wrote, Kind words to those you daily meet. Kind words and actions right will make this life of ours most sweet. 
and it'll turn darkness into light. Kindness reacts with love against those who would even ill-treat us. It's a compliment to patience. And again, it is so vitally important. Beloved, I would suggest that if you leave with nothing else this morning, you leave with this. I would suggest that when you think about all the descriptions that we would mark our lives with for longevity, it is kindness. Kindness is the thing that will never wear out. Beauty, intellect, physical strength, all of this will fade, but there will always be a place for kindness. I would challenge you. Is there ever a place, a circumstance, a moment where kindness is not warranted? I've been hard-pressed to think of one. I mean, we say these things to our kids, don't we? We say them all the time. You, you, if you don't have something kind to say, what do you say? Don't say anything at all, right? Why do we say these things? Because we see the need for kindness. This business of loving, it is active, habitual, something we strive for every minute of every day. It is patient. It is constructive kindness. And now to conclude, I, I have just two more simple things I want to give to you. Things I think that will keep this business of love going. I think the first thing you need is a vision. More specifically, a vision of hope. A hope that rests in the absolute assurance. And I mean the absolute assurance that God is there and that God is with you. To know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That is the kind of hope that drove the prophets regardless of circumstance or outcome. A hope revealed by God through the prophet Isaiah when he wrote those words of assurance that you should write down and keep in your wallet or your purse. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. It is a hope found in the everlasting love of the Savior through whose death and resurrection has passed to each of us the complete and perfect gifts of salvation and forgiveness. We sing the words, don't we? It's one of my favorite hymns ever. Perfect submission all is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed, watching and waiting, looking above, filled with His goodness, lost in His love. You know the words? This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. The last thing I think we need is a fire. We need a fire in our hearts, loved ones. We need to find that something that stirs the passion for action in our hearts and awakens the awareness of the Holy Spirit within us. I would dare say you just saw it on the spotlight, right? A fire in your heart for environmental justice, right? And See what it did? Search for your gifts. Look for ways that God is guiding you specifically and then step out in confidence and act and open your mouth and invite others into it. Be curious. Get out there. Express the love and compassion for Christ in ways that only you can. Whatever it is, find it, start that fire, and once you get it going, fan those flames with all that you have, with an active, continuous love that keeps it going. So your takeaways for today, where charity and love are, God is there. Love is active. It is a continuous, habitual behavior to strive for every minute of every day. Love is patient. Love is constructive kindness. And on a foundation of hope, with the flame in your heart, 
Get out there and get down to business. This business of loving. Let's pray. Generous and ever faithful God, you have spoken to us through your inspired word. Now grant us grace to be not mere hearers of your word, but doers also. Guide us from here by the light of your spirit that we might believe and act on what has been revealed to us today. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church or our vision to eradicate social isolation and disconnection by practicing the faithful presence of the incarnate Christ, please visit GoStAndrew.com. See you next week.